The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about personality and we're going to be chatting through a few different aspects of personality from, you know, what actually is personality versus your temperament, different ways personality can be measured and understood Uh, and different personality disorders, as well as their overlap with different neurodivergences. Yeah, so a question that we often get is, how do you actually tease apart, you know, what is personality versus what is neurodivergence versus what is your, um, like how you were parented um, versus your experiences? All of these things kind of meld together into the patchwork quilt that makes us up who we are. So I guess the short answer of that is, you can't really <laughs> tease all those things apart. Um, but we are going to give a more satisfying answer than that today. Um, and I think it really starts with unpacking this kind of woolly concept of personality. Like what actually is personality? What do we mean when we say personality? So starting off in early life, um, the first thing to look at when we're unpacking personality is this idea of temperament. So temperament is a concept that every single child that is born um, is basically born with a different temperament. And temperament speaks to really how your neurobiology or your neurophysiology reacts to the world around you. It's sort of an inbuilt set of um, traits, I guess, that influence things like your emotional reactivity, um, your activity level, and your mood. So they're the three primary metrics of temperament. So how we've kind of conceptualized temperament has changed over time, um, as with most things. So the sort of old school for temperament styles, um, there was sanguine. Am I saying that right? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so look, if I pronounce that wrong, you're just going to have to change it in your head. Um, melancholic. Uh, then we've got choleric and then phlegmatic. Again, am I saying that right? I think so. I mean, they they kind of do sound like diseases though. They very much do. Mm. So a sanguine person um, is someone who is optimistic, social, and it's also, for those playing at home, associated with the element of air. (laughs) (laughs) A melancholic person, analytic and quiet is the traits associated with earth. A choleric person, short-tempered, irritable, fire. 
Mm. (laughs) And phlegmatic sounds disgusting, but actually (laughs) relaxed, peaceful Mm. water. So look, as much as I love those definitions and descriptions, um, we've actually have a little bit more of an accurate way (laughs) of measuring what someone's temperament is. So what we've sort of moved to is this idea of three kind of primary temperament styles. And these are based on those three metrics that I was talking about earlier. So mood, activity level, and emotional reactivity. So the the labels of these, I will warn you, are quite pejorative. So we've got easy temperament, and that's about 40% of kids. A difficult temperament, and that's about 10% of kids. And then a slow to warm up temperament, and that's about 15% of kids. So kids who fall into that easy temperament category, um, they're usually kids who are usually in sort of a positive mood. So um, we've talked before on the podcast about the whole uh, zones of regulation, you know, blue zone, uh, green, orange, and red. So our kind of easy temperament kids, usually in that green zone. So, and you know, if they go up or down, they're easier able to kind of bring themselves back to that zone. Um, so a bit more emotionally regulated, or I guess another way of putting that is less emotionally reactive. Easy kids have an activity level. It's about moderate to high. Um, and their mood, as I said, usually sort of in a positive mood. Um, so the, the kind of official definition is an easy child's able to adapt quickly to routine and new situations, remains calm, is easy to soothe, and usually in a positive mood. Then we've got our difficult kiddos, the spices. Um, so these are kids who are often quite emotionally reactive. So they have strong feelings. So they're quite easily flicked up into that orange zone or that red zone. They're often in a negative mood or appear to not be sort of in that calm state. So they're quite easily disgruntled, I guess, or upset. Um, And they often cry frequently as well. And then, you know, that makes sense because they're expressing how they're feeling. And really a more accurate way to describe what is called a difficult child is really a child who has very high sensitivity. So a child who is very sensitive to their external and internal environments. And so they're more reactive. Um, they're more likely to uh, be upset because they're experiencing so many more things. Then we've got our slow to warm up kiddos. So these are kids who often have a low activity level. They adjust slowly to new situations. So they kind of need time for their nervous system to acclimatize to new situations or new people. Um, so they can be reactive, but only only if something sort of sprung on them. If you're giving them time to kind of settle in, test the waters, relax their nervous system into different places or states, then they're fine. And they can often also be in a negative mood, um, but more sort of that kind of blue zone. So our slow to warm uppers are more that kind of blue zone kiddos where our, again, I hate this term, but difficult kids or sensitive kids, I would say, are more our orange zoners, whereas our easy kiddos are our green zoners. Yeah. And I think this is where um, this age old debate comes in of nature versus nurture regarding personality development. So there is an idea that, you know, our genetics from our family of origin combined with our temperament. So, you know, how our nervous system that we're born with naturally operates. How do those things interact with the environment that we grow up in? So things like, you know, the culture that we grow up in, 
the generation that we grow up in, the neurotype that we have, the experiences that we're exposed to, um, the family life that we grow up in as well, um, our attachment stuff that we grow up with, all of those things from our environment interacting with our genetics and our temperament then merge and form each of our unique personalities. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's really important to flag that temperament is not personality. Exactly as you said, Monique, temperament is one aspect of our being um, that then sort of feeds into the personality that kind of grows as we develop. Um, and so many things can influence what our personality ends up looking like. And I think an important point to make here too is we previously used to think that personality was totally stable, that the personality that you showed when you were eight, when you were 18, when you were 30, when you were, you know, 50, 60, 70, et cetera, um, that would always be the same. And potentially there might be differences, um, sort of mild differences or mild fluctuations in the expression of that personality, but the underlying personality traits would remain stable. What's really interesting is we're actually found that it's not as stable as previously thought. Now, I don't want you to think that you could go from being an extreme introvert and then, you know, 10 years later, you'll be an extreme extrovert. That's very unlikely. Um, but just to flag that, you know, people's personality can change. And I think that makes a lot of sense when we think about personality exactly as you described, Monique, which is not this sort of singular construct or concept. A personality is the integration of all the different things and experiences and values and, um, you know, our generation, our culture, all of those things that you mentioned that all sort of come together to affect how we behave, how we experience things and how we express ourselves. So when we're talking about personality, part of the definition of personality are, you know, the various traits that you will have that make up your personality. Um, but it's basically how you see yourself and how you perceive those traits and how those traits interact with the world that defines for you what your personality is. So with all of that in mind, we wanted to talk today about some different ways of measuring personality or different, I guess, metrics of personality. Um, I know that we've given like a million definitions of personality already, but another one I'm going to add to the mix, and I think this is actually like quite similar to what you just said, Monique, around your self-concept, right? I also see personality almost as like your story. Like how do you, what's the narrative that you kind of created that represents how you exist in the world and, and, you know, all your traits and features and, and yourself essentially. So when we think about how personality is measured, there's lots of different ways that we can measure personality based again on how it's being defined. So a couple of key uh, ways of measuring personality, we've got values-based measures. So what is it that you value? What's important to you? Your neurobiology. So that's things like temperament, neurotype, your underlying genetic makeup, things like that. Behavior-based. So that's more how you act in the world. Like what choices are you making? What are you actually putting out there in what you do and say into the world. And then we've got goals and kind of story based, which I mentioned before. So this is more like, 
What are you striving for? What's your mission or your purpose? What do you see as kind of the point of of being on this planet? And the goals and story-based stuff, I really love it because I think this way of thinking about personality has always been around in the form of archetypes. Now, this is a, a Jungian psychology concept, but it's also like predates that as well. It's this idea of these powerful sort of inner patterns or themes that have always existed existed throughout humanity that help us to illuminate or understand our core values, our drives, our desires, as well as areas that we might need more growth. So they're essentially patterns or ways of being. And we see these in movies and stories all the time, like the hero's journey Mm. or, you know, um, I can only think of really like pejorative ones, like damsel in distress. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, obviously Mm. there's some really uh, powerful, amazing archetypes um, and they're really what we get out of stories or narratives narratives about people where we kind of are identifying similar themes and drives. And the cool thing that I love about archetypes and goal and story-based personality metrics is it really helps us to give us a little bit of a roadmap of where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. Mm. And your archetypal themes can change throughout your life as you get older or like, you know, different things are happening. Um, But I think it's a nice kind of, um, yeah, it's a nice way to understand what's going on for you. Yeah. And I think whenever you're exploring your personality, it's important to do that from like an aspect of mindfulness. So being curious, Mm. you know, about exploring different aspects of your own traits, including your strengths, but also maybe your weaknesses or your blind spots. And it's really important to try to bring in compassion for yourself when you're exploring aspects of your personality. So the whole goals and story-based metric for personality is, as we said, like a nice narrative style. When we're thinking about quantitative metrics of personality, though, usually these are based on things like values, neurobiology, and behavior-based stuff, so patterns of behavior. Regular listeners of the pod would know that I really, really love the big five personality trait metric. Um, I love it for multiple reasons. Firstly, a love letter to the big five personality traits. <laughs> um, no, um, but firstly, I love it because it's very statistically sound, meaning that it's been well validated cross-culturally across all different ages of people. So I think it's a really sound measure of where someone's sitting on a lot of these different metrics. I also love it because unlike some of the more clinical personality inventories that we might use in different sort of populations or settings. Like there's one, there's a personality inventory called the PAI, which is usually used in forensic settings. And it's all about identifying personality disorders or dysfunctional aspects of personality. Um, And then we've also got the Minnesota multiphasic personality test, which is also a really great clinical tool in that it's good at identifying things like patterns of anxiety or mood issues or things that might be really relevant when you're working with a client or, you know, you're in sort of a mental health setting. So those things definitely have their place. But I think the big five personality inventory is really great at helping someone just understand their patterns of strength and weakness, their patterns of approach avoidance, their patterns of safety, and then where they feel unsafe. I just think it's a really nice way to kind of flesh out your self-awareness and also has great statistical properties as well. So double win. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I know, Michelle, you also really like the Enneagram. And I was really, I don't know, interested to learn that there is research backing up the Enneagram because, yeah, I've never really knew much about that. 
Yeah, so things like Enneagram and Myers-Briggs, and we'll talk about Myers-Briggs in a second, um, but these are kind of more like you can go online and do the quiz and then you get like a little results report thing. Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and, and questionnaires like this, they have their strengths and weaknesses and we'll talk about Enneagram too in a sec, but I think the really important thing to keep in mind as well is that all of these um, like online quizzes, the reason that clinicians don't usually use them as a matter of course is because things like, you know, the big five metrics, the PAI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, they have all been firstly really well normed which means that in the process of creating these questionnaires, they got lots and lots of people to do them. And so they've got a really good base of what's actually frequently occurring versus less frequently occurring. They've also got inbuilt validity measures. So a validity measure is something that actually statistically measures your response styles. So these questionnaires are able to pick up if you're responding in a certain way right? So if you've got, um, for example, like a negative response bias or positive response bias, or if you're responding to try and have a certain type of um, like profile come out, right? They're actually quite complicated in their kind of statistical um, construction. So that's the first thing to be aware of that I think always have a little bit more faith in the, I guess, quote unquote, official personality metrics. But having said that, online stuff can be really fun <laughs> and it can also really help you to understand yourself a bit better. And so you're right. I do really love the Enneagram stuff. And the reason for that is because the way the questionnaire is constructed, is like a forced choice, like, you know, this or that statement. It's quite similar to how official personality inventories are constructed rather than what's called a Likert scale, which is where you're rating, like, for example, one to seven, like how strongly do you agree or disagree with this? And then also the other really cool thing about Enneagram is it's actually been designed with quite well-researched principles of personality, whereas something like the Myers-Briggs, and I'm really sorry to break a lot of hearts right now, <laughs> where <laughs> um, is quite statistically not sound, um, and it was created and designed just by, I think it was just like a mother and daughter or something that just was like, oh, here's what I think about personality. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of threw it together. Mm -hmm. So of course there's aspect. I mean, and if you do the Myers-Briggs and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that's really helpful for mm -hmm. me to know mm -hmm. that I really resonate with that, or I really relate to that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's awesome right? If that helps you understand yourself a little bit more and you enjoy it and it gives you some guidance around, uh, as we said before, like strengths, blind spots, like directions, etc. Mm. Amazing. Yes. But what I would really caution against is using it for things like, you know, who to hire mm. at, at your place of work mm. or mm. making kind of decisions, big decisions based on yeah. your Myers-Briggs results. I think mm -hmm. that's that stresses me out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't make life choices based <laughs> on your Myers-Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> so the other cool thing that I love about the Enneagram is it's also really about what drives you. So for people who aren't familiar with it, you basically, uh, your result is your personality type is a number. And the reason that they did numbers is because there's no kind of value associated with it. So the other thing that's kind of annoying about Myers-Briggs is it's like, I don't know, I'm going to butcher this, but like the personality types are given a name like, I don't know, the the director or mm. whatever, which obviously has a lot of connotation. So yeah. Enneagram is just like you're a four or you're a seven or whatever. So each um, different personality type uh, really is about 
what drives your behavior? What's, what motivates you? So I guess it's about, you know, a mixture of that values based versus behavior based, but also a little bit of goals and story based as well. So we won't go through all of them, but if you're interested, Monique and I are both an eight. Um, <laughs> do with that information what you will. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've actually talked about, you know, that's why we get along as well. You know, part of why we get yeah. along is we have that similar values yeah. uh, and drives with with our Enneagram numbers. Mm. Exactly, exactly. And I think, yeah, like all of these ways of understanding your personality and your self-concept, they might all feel a little bit of a different need for you right? So like your Enneagram, for instance, that's really helpful to know that that's a really core drive for me. And here's maybe some ways that I need to more um, functionally meet that drive, because obviously every drive that someone can have can be met in a way that's functional for them or met in a way that's not functional for them. So it's not about, you know, this personality type is a good one and that's a bad one. It's just about how functionally are you going about meeting your core drives? So something like the big five in contrast is less about your goals or your drives, I guess, or your values. I would say the big five is more about your neurobiology and your behavior. For those of you not familiar with the big five, it's basically five personality traits that uh, you kind of essentially, I always think about it like scoring on a spectrum. So you can be high in something or low in something. As with everything, most people are kind of in the middle for most things. But you usually also have like aspects of your big five constellation that are outliers, like they're quite high or quite low or something. And they might be um, really quite dominant aspects of your personality. So the big five traits, we've got extroversion. So you can be high in extroversion or low in extroversion, being an introvert. We've got openness to experience. And this one can actually be openness to external experience and openness to internal experience. And people can kind of differ on that. Like some people might feel like, oh, I'm not super open to external experience. Like I don't really feel a need or a drive to go out and, you know, have all these external sensory inputs, right? Like new experiences, change or whatever. But I have a really high openness to internal experience, meaning creative thought, fantasy, exploration of new ideas, you know, this kind of internally um, vivid and lush landscape. So, you know, it can be kind of internal or external. Then we've got agreeableness, which we've talked about before in the podcast. So um, just like openness to experience, there's lots of sub-traits of agreeableness. Um, but essentially, it's your kind of tendency to comply or agree. It's also how, um, I guess, externally warm you are. So if you are someone who's generally experiences positive emotions and you're quite warm, um, and it's also your sort of politeness or your tendency to acquiesce, uh, just being agree- an agreeable person, I guess. Then we've got conscientiousness. So um, again, sub-traits of these, but you can be kind of socially conscientious. So socially conscientious people are people who they'll always show up with a bottle of wine at your house, right? They're very um, conscientious, I guess, of what's expected of them socially, um, you know, meeting the kind of demands of the situation. You can also be work conscientious, right? So these are people who cross all their T's, dot all their I's, uh, very organized, very detailed focused, quite self-disciplined and quite achievement striving. So lastly, we have neuroticism, and this is highly related to anxiety and 
and a person's propensity to be anxious, basically. So people who score high on neuroticism tend to be very alert to possible threat, right? Very aware of their surroundings. So if we think back to the temperament stuff we were talking about, these are people who have always had quite a sensitive nervous system um, and quite a reactive nervous system as well. So neurotic people often experience quite erratic moods. They're more prone to depression, self-consciousness. So they're quite kind of internally heightened. Whereas people who are low on neuroticism tend to be conversely and sometimes problematically unaware of possible problems or threats, right? Rarely experience anxiety. So, you know, I think the big five, looking at things like the big five and then other metrics, potentially if you love Myers-Briggs, go nuts, um, (laughs) try Enneagram if you want to. Um, These are things that just really help you get a little bit of an idea about where aspects of your personality are sitting relative to other people in society. And I always find whenever I do personality metrics, like formal ones, there's aspects that I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Like that's, I completely agree. And there's other things that I'm always like, oh, that's kind of a surprise. Like that's, I, now that I read that, I can see that that's true, but I would have never thought of myself in that way. So I think it can be helpful, you know, just to kind of get a little bit of that. Yeah. External kind of feedback as to how you're, where you're sitting, I guess, relative to the rest of the population. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we've had a chat about how personality forms, um, the different metrics through which we measure different personality traits and aspects of personality. Um, but something that we'd like to chat about is personality disorders. Uh, and this was a requested topic by our listeners who really wanted us to, I guess, dive deep into, you know, what actually is a personality disorder? What's the overlap, you know, and co-occurrence with neurodivergence as well. And yeah, I think it's just an important topic to cover as part of, you know, being a mental health podcast. Yeah. And I think it's actually so important to unpack what is personality disorders because of any diagnosis I think that someone can get when they see a mental health professional, a diagnosis of a personality disorder is often like the most scary one to get. And it makes sense. Like it's in the name. It's like your personality is disordered. <laughs> like it's quite intense thing to hear. Um, so I'm really excited actually to dive in and go through the ins and outs of this. Yeah, I think it's an interesting area to unpack too, because there has been some debate in the world of neurodiversity, the neurodiversity affirming movement and neurodivergence around like what constitutes, you know, a neurodivergence Mm. and do personality disorders, do they form part of the neurodiversity affirming movement? And, you know, are they actually a neurodivergence? Are they more a mental health condition? So I'm sure all of our listeners are really fascinated to hear what actually um, our answer to that question is. And we will answer it. We will get there. But first, Monique, can you tell us or explain to us what actually is a personality disorder? Like what's the definition of a personality disorder? Yeah. So when we look at the DSM, which is our diagnostic and statistical manual um, that contains all of the 
D words, all of the disorders that we use um, as part of being psychologists. The official definition that includes all of the different personality disorders at its core is an enduring pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the individual's culture. So I thought that was a really interesting sort of thing to bring up in that, Mm. you know, personality disorder exists within a culture. Mm. You know, it's not existing in isolation. It's really actually, if you're getting diagnosed with a personality disorder, it's sort of like, well, it's because however you're, inner experiences or your behavior is, is not matching like those cultural expectations. Yeah, totally. I think that's such a good point to make because as with everything, like we talk a lot about the impact of what's culturally defined and the social model of disability being that, you know, something's a disability by virtue of those friction points between the person's experience and and what's expected or the supports Mm. in place in the culture. And it's so interesting that recognition of what's culturally sanctioned or what's considered culturally appropriate is also a major factor. Like it's a core diagnostic factor of whether something is a personality disorder or not. Yeah, super interesting too, because I guess when they were writing the DSM, they weren't really maybe thinking about culture in terms of neurological culture like the different cultures that exist within neurotypical society and, you know, having that neurology. And then there are actually different cultural norms within neurodivergent society as well. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's an interesting point to kind of make. So, yeah, basically um, when we're talking about your pattern of inner experience and behaviour, basically it breaks it down into different sections. So, How is your inner experience and behavior differing from those cultural expectations in terms of your cognition? So your thought patterns about yourself, about other people and events in your life and the world, your affectivity. So again, like your experience of your emotions and your emotional reactivity to the environment, your interpersonal functioning. So, you know, how are you interacting with the world and other people, whether it's at work, whether it's in relationships, in education systems. So, yeah, those wider systems in the world. And again, interesting because we have talked a lot on the podcast about a lot of those systems like the workplace and education being more built for neurotypical people. And the last one is impulse control, which is interesting as well. And there are some caveats in there as well. So, whatever pattern of inner experience and behavior that you are demonstrating that an outside observer is going, okay, this is not fitting into the cultural norm. It basically has to be inflexible. Okay. So not being able to be adaptive to different events that happen to you across your lifetime or different environments that you're exposed to. So not being able to adapt to your environment. And it also has to be distressing to you, to your inner experience or impairing you in different areas of functioning. So making it really difficult to function in a workplace or maintain relationships. So I think those caveats on the end are pretty important in terms of differentiating what are personality traits, you know, that we all may have um, or that you may be on that more extreme end of versus an actual traits to the point where it becomes a disorder. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too because the DSM actually does, um, you know, with each of the different personality disorders, make cautions about, you know, you need to make sure that you are not judging someone in terms of like you not having knowledge of that cultural context, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it also talks about clinicians really needing to be aware of, you know, gender bias as well. And it notes in the DSM about how there is a pattern of how certain personalities disorders more men tend to get diagnosed with and other personality disorders that women tend to get diagnosed with and to to be conscious of and aware of that implicit bias within yourself as a clinician around making sure you're not you know perpetuating that pattern what i find really interesting with that is we were talking earlier around how to have the diagnosis or to get a personality disorder diagnosis, it has to be outside of like cultural norms or, or um, what's kind of accepted in the culture. And what's interesting about the gender bias is, you know, where's the line between like what's culturally acceptable versus what is a gender bias? Because part of culture is often saying it is okay for women to behave like this, but not like this. And it's okay for men to behave like this, but not like this. So yeah, I think, I don't know, just just food for thought, I guess, around, yeah, where's the line between what is normative in the culture versus what is a, a gender-based stereotype? Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge, like, when we're looking at things, statistically speaking, there are always going to be outliers, mm. There are going to be like the majority of the population that fit in that norm or that average. There are always going to be people further and further out that, you know, for whatever reason, don't fit into um, that societal expectation or culture. Mm. Um, they may not necessarily meet criteria for personality disorders or have a personality disorder, but they are very different or living differently or thinking differently to the norm. And it's sort of like, well, what constructs are we using to actually categorize that? And is it helpful to pathologize that? And where do we draw the line with that? Because obviously there are aspects where people, regardless of whether they have a personality disorder or not, may do things like break the law or do things that are not pro-social, like actually causing harm or violence to another person. So yeah, this is another thing that's sort of debated around personality disorders. And I've seen chatter about this um, from people in online communities who, you know, do have personality disorders going. Part of the stigma around being diagnosed with a personality disorder is as soon as you disclose that to people, like I've been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, people automatically attribute like morality to that, like you're Mm. a good person or you're a bad person or, you know, you're evil because you have a narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. And yeah, like there are people out there who have those traits or maybe have that full-blown disorder label, but they may not be doing things like breaking the law or, you know, abusing others or things like that. I think that's an important point to kind of cover if we're going to be covering you know, the whole spectrum of this topic. Absolutely. And it's interesting what you're saying before around, uh, yeah, like the values and connotations that people apply to things like personality disorder. Like I I remember um, in uni, like in my master's, when we were learning about personality disorders and 
it was actually referred to as like, you know, the three different sort of sets or types of personality disorders were actually referred to as sad, mad, and bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can get any more simplistic than that. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, these are the sad ones. These are the mad ones. These are the bad ones. Mm. And it was kind of done a bit tongue in cheek, but even to do that, like even ironically, is not appropriate in a university yeah. course because it's then yeah it's 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 just emphasizing those kind of implicit connotations that we have around um yeah personality and and what that means for someone. Mm. So with that in mind, Monique, can you actually just take us through what are the personality disorders? So overall, there are 10 different personality disorders and then two in the DSM that are kind of more non-specific. So like a personality change due to like a medical condition. It's like a category with unspecified personality disorder, which is very general and vague, I think. But the more specific ones, like what you were referring to before, Michelle, are divided into three categories. So they're called clusters. The first cluster is is cluster A, personality disorders, um, and the ones that fall in that are paranoid personality disorder. So that's basically where you have a really pervasive sense of distrust um, and suspiciousness of others that's sort of present from early adulthood throughout the rest of your life. So always interpreting the world through a lens that others are out to get you, something really bad's going to happen, yeah. Does that involve um, like thought delusions as well or can it involve thought delusions or would that be a separate diagnosis of psychosis? Um, it can involve thought delusions. So like one of the criteria is, you know, suspecting without sufficient basis or evidence that others are exploiting, harming or deceiving you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like having these really strong beliefs and thoughts without actual evidence. And again, this is where personality disorders can be so open to interpretation because, for example, if you had a traumatic childhood and you grew up with family members that were actually causing harm to you like every day, then it makes sense that, you know, your beliefs about yourself, other people and the world in general are going to be influenced by that. And you are going to naturally, as a way of adapting to that environment, have beliefs that others are out to get you or be suspicious or mistrustful because of the environment that you've grown up in. I think that's such a good point and it really gets to the what purpose does, you know, do these kind of personality disorders serve? And we're going to talk more about that in depth later. But just with that kind of paranoid one as well, I wonder if um, not only just like the environment that you grew up in, but if someone's experienced, say, um, like really complex or systematic trauma or abuse, even mm-hmm. in adulthood, mm-hmm. and then they have developed sort of this quite paranoid way of interpreting the world or um, or seeing other people, would you feel like that becomes categorized as an unspecified personality disorder or that seems more like a development of psychosis secondary to trauma? Well, usually with personality disorders, the under the general understanding is that it's a pattern of beliefs and ways of thinking about yourself, other people, and the world in general that start earlier in your development. So the seeds are there in childhood and adolescence, and usually by the time you know you're in your late adolescence, like 18, 19, 20, those beliefs are coming becoming more solidified. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you 
basically, you know, we're in your 30s or 40s and then underwent like a really significant betrayal trauma. And then as a result of that trauma, developed really negative beliefs about being able to trust others and the world in general, and maybe some interpersonal paranoia about that. Mm. I would say that that would be more a trauma response. Yeah. Like you might meet more the criteria for trauma or complex, you know, PTSD, particularly if you'd had like maybe, um, yeah, a domestic violence relationship, um, or trauma as an adult. So usually if someone's personality significantly changes in adulthood, we really more look at, um, like, is it a medical condition is there substance use you know that's yeah that what's, what's the trigger that's yeah kind of what's the this? trigger yeah. is it a traumatic event and this is why whenever you're evaluating this aspect of a person it's really important to take your time get to know the person really well hear their history and actually hear from other people who've grown up with them or known them like get collateral information um, about like what that person was like growing up and you do have to take these contextual things into consideration was their childhood trauma that's really influenced the development of the, that person's personality um, of what you can influence. So we're really talking more about like the genetic stuff's there, right? And the temperament stuff's there, but we're now talking about more the environmental stuff, you know, and how that impacts personality development. Absolutely great point. And something that I think is so, so important in any diagnostic context that you're really looking at what is like the course and the duration and the intensity and the frequency, all of these markers of how long has this thing been going on? So exactly as you say, getting that really good history and collateral information, so important. So the next personality disorder in cluster A is schizoid personality disorder. So with schizoid personality, um, it's basically a pattern of detachment from social relationships and having a restricted range of expression of emotions in different interpersonal settings. So someone that's, yeah, not really wanting close relationships, um, wanting to be alone, then we have schizotypal personality disorder, um, which is basically a pattern of social and interpersonal deficits. So again, the D word and basically discomfort for and reduced capacity for close relationships, as well as cognitive or perceptual distortions and eccentricities of behavior. So this one's interesting because I've had like a, a few people that I've worked with over the years who, for example, were like, oh, you know, I don't want to tell you that um, I believe in astrology or like I believe in the occult, so like witchcraft or magic or whatever, because if I tell you this, I'll be diagnosed with, you know, schizophrenia or one thing comes to mind is the schizotypal personality disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is again where we take into account like cultural context. If someone believes in, you know, magic and wicker and all of that, and it's not impairing their functioning and it's not causing them any distress, then they're not going to meet criteria for this personality disorder. Absolutely. And this is where I think it's so important as a clinician to separate your own values and judgment from that um, and actually think about is this culturally appropriate? 
even if it's like the subculture that that person belongs to. You know, you could have someone come in who is a fundamentalist Christian and some people might think, well, that's delusional. And then someone else might come in and say, you know, I'm a Wiccan. And, you know, another person might say, I think that's delusional. So it's so important to really be taking into account the caveats of distress, disturbance to function and the cultural context of people's beliefs. So we now move on to cluster B, personality disorders. So the first one in cluster B is antisocial personality disorder. Um, So this is where there's a pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. Then we have borderline personality disorder, which Michelle and I will be discussing, you know, in more detail a little bit further on. Um, So this is a pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, um, self-image, so how you see yourself and affect, so emotion, uh, market impulsivity as well. Then we have narcissistic personality disorder, which is another one we're going to dive a little bit deeper into. Um, so this is where there is a pattern of grandiosity, so in your thoughts or behavior, a need for admiration, um, a lack of empathy. Can you just explain to people what grandiosity is? Um, so basically believing that you are better than what you are, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but like to an extreme amount. <laughs> yeah. Excessive. Excessive. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So like I'm the best chef in the world and I can only cook like baked beans on toast. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then we come to cluster C, um, the first of which is avoidant personality disorder. So a pattern of feeling socially inhibited. So again, difficulty with socializing, feelings of inadequacy and hypersensitivity to being negatively evaluated by other people. I mean, it sounds like this could apply to a lot of, you know, our neurodivergent clients in a way. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, even as as we kind of go through them all, it's, I think, again, I know we sound like a broken record, mm. but when you're making a diagnosis of a personality disorder, it's not just about people demonstrating these traits. It's about these traits being caused by or, or, you know, specifically related to this pattern of, you know, extreme personality uh, manifestation across the lifespan. Um, and it also involves really good assessment of possible what's called differential diagnoses. So, mm. you know, what you described there with avoidant personality disorder, um, if that's something that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, my client is demonstrating this or you feel like that's, you know, the case for you maybe, it would be really important to also investigate potential neurodiversity because Mm. maybe that's the cause of it Mm -hmm. right so yeah there is so much overlap between um the behaviors or experiences or traits in these things Mm. but it's all about getting down to the why and and also like uh, we'll add as well that you can be both like you could have a neurodivergence, you could be autistic for instance and then also meet criteria for a personality disorder so yeah, it, it, it is a bit of a tricky area of diagnosis, I think, personality disorder, and it really requires um, a very thorough investigation of all possible differentials or all possible mm. other causes. Yeah, I agree. And I actually think that, you know, with the growing awareness around neurodivergence and particularly in people who previously would have been like underdiagnosed, um, so particularly like women, I would say that like for clinicians, we probably do need to include 
screening for different neurodivergencies. Like you really do need to screen for autism and ADHD, like at the minimum, if you are going to also be assessing someone for a personality disorder, Mm. because uh, some of the traits that could actually be attributed to, you know, the person being neurodivergent, so their autistic or ADHD traits, you know, they may actually get misdiagnosed as a personality disorder, just like this avoidant personality disorder. Or it could be an interaction of both. So the person being undiagnosed autistic and then experiencing like a lot of bullying or exclusion um, across their life and are getting a lot of negative commentary because, you know, they are undiagnosed autistic. It could actually lead to them having that internal experience, right? Absolutely. Completely agree. I think too, and, and we've touched on this in our previous episode with Anastasia on bipolar. Um, I think too, you know, considering other neurodivergences like bipolar mm. or like psychosis, for instance, mm-hmm. um, I feel like a lot of times, uh, mental health professionals who are not psychiatrists, are often quite uh, reticent, I think, to make a diagnosis of things like bipolar or psychosis because it's sort of seen as all that's kind of outside the psychology field. That's more a psychiatry, um, you know, uh, condition or, or that would be treated or managed through a psychiatrist. But it's also important that you know enough to be screening for those things um, if you're, exactly as you say, Monique, diving into a personality disorder diagnosis or exploring that. And you might not feel like your expertise covers enough to be able to feel confident to make a diagnosis or say psychosis or uh, bipolar, but you should get to a point where you're like, yes, I there's enough traits or there's enough um, symptoms or signs here that I feel confident referring to a psychiatrist to confirm mm. or, or, you know, mm-hmm. disconfirm mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the next in cluster C is dependent personality disorder, um, which is an excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clinging behavior and fears of separation. Um, like, again, I do think that there could be times where a person is experiencing like a disability, which means that they are actually dependent on the help of others to get some of their everyday needs met. So like, again, you really need to take into account the context of actually what's going on. And especially if the person has a hidden or invisible disability, that means that actually without a lot of support, they are having a lot of difficulty navigating the outside world. Again, I think you really need to be thorough in your assessment and kind of be able to tease apart, like, is this, again, what you were saying before, Michelle, a personality trait that's taken to a bit more of that extreme, or is it actually due to something else? Then we have the last one, which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And this is interesting because I have sort of seen a little bit of overlap in people who might present for assessment of autism and maybe they've had a previous diagnosis of obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But when you actually dig deeper, it actually looks more like undiagnosed autism um, or, you know, again, you have to rule out something like OCD. So again, really needing to be very thorough, but it's basically a pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, uh, mental and interpersonal control at the expense of flexibility, openness, and efficiency. Mm. This is a really interesting one because 
I feel like when people often say, oh, I'm so OCD, what you're actually meaning is closer to this obsessive compulsive personality disorder rather than obsessive compulsive disorder itself. They're different. So with obsessive compulsive disorder, it really requires you to have the obsession, which is an intrusive thought, a thought that says, you know, that's unbidden, that's unwanted, that pops into your head. And it's usually distressing. Like it's usually a thought that you're like, I'm not enjoying thinking about this. Um, And then in order to neutralize that thought, you need to perform a compulsion. So you need to do something in a particular way. So maybe hand washing or maybe tapping or maybe, um, you know, stepping over lines or or, or something like that. OCD compulsions is different from, say, ritualized or repetitive behaviors in autism because those behaviors for an autistic person are soothing and enjoyable or a stim or a way to self-soothe, whereas in OCD, it's the compulsion, the purpose the compulsion serves is to neutralize or eliminate an intrusive thought. So, Conversely, again, with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, that's that kind of trait of, or extreme trait, I guess, of really needing things to be in a particular way to the point where it is interfering with function, relationship, it's causing you distress, all the other things that we've talked about. Mm, Yeah, absolutely agree. So now that we've gone through uh, what all the personality disorders are and a little bit about each one, we really wanted to unpack what causes a personality disorder. Like how does someone end up with a personality disorder? So Monique, I just wanted to ask you, my theory around this is that essentially, like I was talking about before with the big five personality traits, you know, most people are sort of in the middle for most things, but we all have aspects of our personality that may be, you know, a relative outlier or something that's kind of a quite a strong feature of our personality relative to, you know, everyone else around us. So my kind of theory around one of the causes is it's essentially someone who has quite a, you know, very strong outlier on certain metrics, right? They've got aspects of their personality that are quite different and it's quite outside the normative or the the typical kind of representation of that personality trait. And then also that person might have experiences which actually exacerbates that personality trait. So for instance, if someone is sort of predisposed to being, for example, a highly neurotic person and they're someone who is very alert to their surrounds, they're very aware of or thinking about like what other people think of them or all of that type of stuff, then they have experiences, say for instance, in their childhood, which actually confirms a lot of that, that says, actually, no, this is good for you to be thinking like this, um, or kind of enhances that trait, then that might lead to a point where that person then meets criteria for a personality disorder. What's your thought around that? Yeah, um, that's generally what is the consensus. It's it's hard because, you know, we're still doing research into what goes into someone, yeah, like developing a full-blown personality disorder versus those traits. So there are different sort of theories, but like the theory that I personally subscribe to is, you know, the genetic vulnerability plus the temperament, having, you know, a temperament that is maybe very sensitive or very like undersensitive as well, 
plus the environmental triggers. Mm -hmm. Like the experiences you've had. Yeah. 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 And usually when you're interviewing somebody, there are people who go through adverse experiences in their childhood. So maybe having a traumatic childhood or events that are difficult to cope with and how that particular person has coped with, with those events is determined sometimes by those genetics, by those personality traits. Um, But what can end up happening is is when you're exposed to childhood trauma um, or adverse events, yeah, it can end up exacerbating whatever coping mechanism you had at the time and that can sort of exacerbate particular personality traits to the point where those particular personality traits may have enabled you to survive and get through that really um, difficult period in your life. But then when you reach adulthood and, you know, maybe you're able to, I don't know, move into a different environment, those traits are kind of like more wired in. Mm. And those traits may not actually be helpful for you as an adult going into, you know, the workplace or um, trying to form relationships um, and going about living a healthy adult life where your needs are met and you're also aware of and able to meet the needs of others. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good summary. And the way that I kind of think about the difference between like a personality disorder, which has emerged as an interaction of, you know, your underlying genetic susceptibility, your temperament, your natural kind of personality distribution and the experiences that you've had versus say just, you know, run of the mill trauma response, right? Like someone having a fight response or a flight response or a freeze response is this idea of like actually the aspects of your personality. So the, like we've defined before, your behavior and your internal experience, they were actually already there, but then the trauma or your experiences that confirmed that or made that actually quite adaptable to act in that way solidified those aspects of your personality. And then it's now become, as you said, Monique, quite hardwired into how you operate and how you perceive the world, like the filter through which you see interactions in the world and yourself. And we know like our environment growing up, we know that if in general you are safe in your childhood, um, that you, the people around you are safe people, that your environment is a safe one and your needs are being met, that is going to impact the development of your brain in a certain way. And if you are not safe, you know, you don't have that relational safety or environmental safety, you having those threats, you know, to your life, um, to the development of your sense of identity as well, then that actually changes the development of your neurology and your brain and things like your amygdala. Um, so that we also need to take that into account for the development of personality and personality disorders too. So for example, with BPD or borderline personality disorder, the research basically shows that it is, it is really common for people to report a history of childhood sexual abuse. And then in adulthood to, yeah, be labeled with BPD. And so part of the tricky thing for us as clinicians is really trying to tease out, well, does this person actually have complex PTSD or is it BPD? And like, how has their complex PTSD um, of going through 
um, those ongoing and chronic traumatic experiences, how much of it has influenced their personality development, their brain development, and resulted in them then meeting criteria for BPD. So things like attachment as well, if someone has a lot of um, significant attachment trauma, then of course they're going to display traits of what is labeled as borderline personality disorder, which, you know, the dominant trait of that is fears around rejection and abandonment. Yeah. So it's sort of like trying to tease these things apart. Yeah. And I think with BPD, so borderline personality disorder, a really big characteristic of that is that kind of emotional instability. So that intense kind of roller coaster of emotions. And as you say, Monique, that centering around fear of rejection and relational conflict and all of the things that kind of come interpersonally. And I think that it's important to flag too that while we do often see lots of individuals who are diagnosed with BPD having this kind of history of sexual abuse or quite significant trauma, it's not always the case. So it is possible for people to present with borderline personality disorder in adulthood and actually not have had a trauma history. And I think that really exemplifies the complexity of the interaction between our genetics, our experiences, how we were parented, um, other aspects of our personality too, and whether or not, you know, we may have experienced complex trauma or not, because we might say have some Someone who um, maybe they were showing these kind of outlier personality traits, but because they had, you know, childhood sexual abuse, it's then kind of manifested or turned into this sort of BPD presentation. But had they not had that experience, they maybe wouldn't have met criteria. But then you could have someone who hasn't had, you know, a, a traumatic childhood experience, but just because of the significance of the intensity of like, say, the outliers of different personality aspects, even without the trauma, mm. they're still kind of meeting that criteria. I think a really good way of understanding that is because sometimes it can feel a bit like, okay, well, but why is this person, you know, meeting criteria, for instance, for personality disorder? Like, you know, they've had a relatively quote unquote normal life. Um, and I think it's really important to understand this concept that experiences affect people differently. So I think most people have probably seen that little infographic, right, where it's like um, a fence and, you know, different people kind of standing on different tiers and like how big you need the boost to be able to see over the fence and everyone's a different height, right? So someone who's really tall, for instance, doesn't really need a boost. They can easily see over the fence. And in the metaphor that, you know, we're using now, it might be like, okay, great. I, you know, have a green zone personality, right? Not many of my personality traits are outliers. It's quite easy for me to function in the world um, and have kind of a, a stable life, so to speak. Someone else who naturally is maybe shorter needs a really big boost. But if you've got the kind of double whammy, right, of maybe naturally being predisposed to some of these things and then having experiences that exacerbate it, that's mm -hmm. when we see, you know, often a mm -hmm. lot of things mm -hmm. like personality disorders be diagnosed. But it doesn't always need the environmental exacerbation. Yeah, correct. And then when we're trying to tease apart things like autism and ADHD and BPD as well, one way of looking at it would be to go, okay, if the person is 
demonstrating like a lot of emotional ups and downs, emotional extremes. It's really trying to look into, well, why? Is it actually a sensory sensitivity um, and the person is having an autistic meltdown or has there been a lot of change happen for that person in their life and, you know, they are having difficulty processing that amount of change um, and then, you know, having that meltdown? Is it due to the emotional reactivity and impulsivity that can come from being an ADHDer? You know, or is it actually a BPD specific emotional reactivity that is really centered around relational safety and the state of the person's relationships? So any like perceived rejection or abandonment is triggering more the emotional reactivity. And then looking at that pattern across the person's life in different contexts. With narcissistic personality disorder, I would really look at it as though, you know, a person who's gone through different life experiences and really looking at what has their coping mechanism been and how do they actually cope with um, the emotion around shame. For example, say if you are a young person and you have a difficult experience where, you know, a teacher remarked on something negative about you in your school report or an assessment or whatever, how do you actually sit with that negative response within you? How do you actually respond to feeling um, maybe shame in that moment of like, oh, I'm not good enough, like I'm defective, right? Because people who have narcissistic traits or that full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, basically their personality structure is really constructed for them in a way that is, you know, actually trying to help them adapt to really not being able to tolerate feeling any sense of shame. Yeah, I think that's so important for people to know. And one of the reasons why we did want to go into a bit more detail uh, around BPD and narcissistic personality disorder is they're often the ones that have quite negative connotations um, and, and kind of perceived quite negatively. And obviously, you know, I'm not saying for a second that it's fun to be around someone who has a narcissistic PD, but it's also important to recognize what purpose did that serve? And I think looking at those kind of shame emotions is such the key to understanding someone who is a narcissist or has narcissistic personality disorder because it's that real inability to deal with or sit with those really yucky feelings of shame. And so this entire personality structure has basically been developed in order to protect that person from having to face those feelings or having to deal with those feelings. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Monique, about, yeah, the impact of parenting and family structure as well on identity development. If someone has narcissistic traits, so to speak, or, you know, has elevations on personality traits that are sort of correlated with with that personality style. But they have the experience in childhood of being explicitly taught ways and strategies to deal with shame, which enables them to come out of that with an intact sense of identity, then they're less likely to develop this kind of full-blown PD. 
But if they're in an environment where uh, they're not actually given any tools or strategies or structures or ways to actually experience shame, because we all experience shame, you know, particularly in childhood, everyone can think of moments that they felt shameful, right? Um, If there's no strategies that that person has to have that experience and then emerge from that experience with their identity intact, with a way to be like, okay, I had this experience, but I'm still an okay person, then it's likely that that person may kind of move into that narcissistic PD because the strategies that they had to develop they just had to come up with completely on their own. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to reject any information that indicates that I'm not amazing. That's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm just not going to accept or entertain any data point that would suggest that I'm not great. And that's how mm-hmm. I will maintain a sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think, you know, it actually surprises a lot of people um, who don't know about mm-hmm. narcissistic personality disorder that actually um, for these people who may present like as really grandiose and very charming and like, yeah, having a lot of those amazing self-beliefs about themselves to like an extreme amount that actually underneath there is a lot of unprocessed you know shame and interpersonal trauma that the person just has no capacity at that point in time to actually cope with or deal with so it all gets sort of suppressed if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah I always think of anyone who comes across as an asshole so the more like assholey someone seems usually the more shame Mm, they have. mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. being a terrible person to other people and shame go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. Um, And this is where too I think some of those stereotypes can come about around narcissistic PD, um, around like if you're very much focused on yourself and your own survival and, Mm. you know, there's no ability to take in any information that may – portray you in a negative light, then this is where you might overstep the boundaries of others or um, the boundaries of the law and actually end up in like a lot of trouble or actually end up perpetuating a cycle of abuse um, that you may have been through in childhood and that, you know, that's where the personality disordered stuff has come from and then it gets perpetuated. And this is where I really wanted to bring up um, to just talk about the role of intergenerational trauma in um, personality disorder formation as well. So usually, yeah, you will see that there has been a pattern of generation to generation of childhood trauma, parents coping in particular ways, um, and then not being able to meet those developmental needs of the children And then, you know, the parents having maybe personality disorder traits or full-blown personality disorder, and then the children like learning from that and learning to survive that environment and then developing, you know, personality disorder traits. And there'll be people within that family unit that maybe are able to cope um, in a more adaptive way and not develop a personality disorder growing up in that environment. And it may be because they had a bigger 
like box to stand on to look over the fence. Um, whereas people with less capacity to cope in that environment may have, yeah, tried to cope the best that they could, but developed more of those traits that are not going to be adaptive in other types of environments later on in adulthood. And I think too, it's also really important to acknowledge that intergenerational trauma and personality disorders can exist alongside intergenerational genetic neurodivergence as well. So like in my practice, because I do work with a lot of complex trauma, I will often see the pattern of both. Mm. So there'll be a lot of traits of autism and ADHD running in a family. And then like a lot of also people having different ways of coping, maybe with being undiagnosed autistic or ADHD that have resulted in different personality styles or addictions or whatever that person did to cope in that situation. So yeah, it's sort of looking at, well, you can actually have both exist. You can have like a genetic neurodivergence, like autism and ADHD. And then, you know, depending on the environment you have growing up that impacting the development of your personality as well. And when I think of um, narcissistic personality disorder, it makes me sort of wonder about like all these undiagnosed kids out there with undiagnosed ADHD. Like we've talked about on the podcast, if you're undiagnosed ADHD, you can receive up to 12,000 negative comments about you by the time you're age 12. Mm -hmm. If you have, um, you know, that undiagnosed neurodivergence of ADHD, you have the difficult temperament, so you're more likely to experience negative or low mood states. More reactive. More reactive to things. Um, and then you're having like a lot of negative input that's making you feel shameful and bad about yourself all the time for something that's actually beyond your control. Um, that is where we can sometimes see people develop that narcissistic coping style to mm -hmm. cope with that. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's really important as a person to have compassion for yourself in that situation. If that reflects your experience, if that reflects the experience of people within your wider family unit or people that you've known, you know, having experience of compassion for yourself for the difficulties that you may have had from, you know, interacting with that person for sure, but also having compassion and understanding like that person's probably developed that coping style for a reason. And yeah, as clinicians, I think really needing to untangle like, yes, the intergenerational trauma and personality development stuff with undiagnosed neurodivergence and the trauma that undiagnosed neurodivergent people often experience, you know, that leads to difficulty with a positive sense of identity, right? Mm. And then also acknowledging that there will sometimes be that genetic intergenerational autism, ADHD, like other neurodivergences, like running in that family as well. So it's quite a complex picture. Absolutely. And I, I love what you said there about, you know, meeting all of this stuff with compassion. And I think it's important to flag um, that compassion doesn't mean just blind acceptance of things and saying, oh, okay, well, that's okay. So compassion is actually an incredibly active state of mind, right? So it's it's this infinitely sort of wise state of being where it allows the thinker to actually hold all of the components of suffering, including emotion, logic, understanding of, you know, what's driving what's going on, and to actively choose a path towards the alleviation of that suffering that's non-judgmental 
and that's kind. So sometimes that might mean you acting in a way that alleviates your suffering if you're affected by a personality disorder. But if you're the person as well who maybe has that diagnosis, again, self-compassion is about holding all of these components and actively choosing that path that's going to lead to the alleviation of maybe yours and others' suffering. So it's a really active state of kindness, um, wisdom, and compassionate action, essentially. And one kind of other thing I wanted to just note on that too, which I think is helpful when we try and engage that active state of compassion, is really thinking about, you know, people's behaviors and responses, even our own, that are not functional or that cause harm in some way. It's usually a way of getting a need met. And I loved what you were just saying before about narcissistic PD, Monique, because what kind of came up for me when I was listening to you is essentially it sounds like people who have a narcissistic personality disorder are trying to get their power bucket filled. They have this history of feeling chronically powerless. And as we've talked about before, that can impact people differently. Like someone, for instance, who is very high in agreeableness, doesn't really mind or minds less being powerless. Someone low on agreeableness hates that, right? That's really distressing. So this is someone who is trying to get that power bucket filled, which is a really normal, natural thing to want. It's horrible to feel powerless and is also trying their very best subconsciously to construct and maintain a coherent and positive self-identity and sense of self. And when we understand it from that point of view, that then means that we've got so much more freedom to move forward with compassion. Yeah. And I think just to kind of tie things together and finish up, I really believe that it's important for, you know, A, people to get accurately and thoroughly assessed and really have what is actually going on and why teased out for them so that they have a better understanding of themselves um, and their, you know, treating team has a better understanding of, you know, how to best support that person. If you have co-occurring things going on, like if you are autistic and ADHD and, you know, actually are borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder as well, it's really important that all three co-occurring conditions need to be treated and supported, right? We can't just sort of work with one and ignore the other one or the other two. Like the whole picture really needs to kind of be, yeah, addressed basically. Um, And yeah, just for any clinicians out there, I would really love to see like across psychiatry, across psychology, public hospitals, private hospitals, when people are presenting really thorough assessment and particularly for adult mental health services, we really do need to be better screening for and assessing for co-occurring autism, ADHD, when people are coming in and you're querying, you know, potential personality disorder. Michelle, you know, you did ask me earlier on what were my thoughts on whether personality disorders should be considered a part of neurodivergence, the neurodiversity affirming movement. And my answer is 
a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Like I kind of sit on the fence. Like part of me is like if we were to define neurodivergence as mainly a neurobiological difference to, you know, um, the average range um, or the most common neurotype in society, then, yeah, like there's definitely that genetic component. There's the temperament component. And then with complex trauma, like that does change your brain. You probably are going to have a different neurobiological response to the environment than someone who is, you know, neurotypical. And then there, there's an, another side of me that's sort of like, oh, but is it more trauma-based? Is it more like not the nature side of things, but more the nurture and the environment side of things? So, yeah, the answer is I don't know. I'm open to information. I'm open to considering like all aspects of it. And yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I have to agree in that it is so difficult to tease apart, primarily because I think we don't have a universal definition for what neurodivergence is. And I'm exactly the same as you, Monique. I completely agree. I think there's definitely aspects of personality disorder um, or, or features of personality disorders that do absolutely fit within what we would think of as neurodiversity, right? They're well outside, you know, the spectrum or the bell curve of what's considered, you know, commonly occurring or typical. Um, they're often with someone for a really long period of time. It's not just like a, a momentary reaction or response to things. Um, and they do fundamentally affect how you um, exist in the world, you know, how you interpret the world, the responses you get back. So there's absolutely aspects of it that are very neurodivergent-esque. And I can completely understand why, um, yeah, it would be considered part of the neurodiversity spectrum. I think my only caveat to that is that it's always really important, and this is true for autism and ADHD as well, is always really important to treat the mental health issues going on. So similarly, like if someone comes in who's autistic and is experiencing severe depression, for instance, treatment of that depression is not about changing them being autistic, but it's treating their mental health condition or their mental health concern so that they can live a happier, healthier, you know, more functional life. Similarly with someone with a PD, it's not like we're saying we're going to completely change how your personality is structured, but treatment would be around enabling them to live a more happy, healthy, functional, less distressing life, essentially. You know, someone who has a personality disorder is always probably going to have those outliers on their personality kind of spectrum, so to speak. Like someone with BPD is always probably going to be more reactive to interpersonal conflict, um, interpersonal, like lack of interpersonal safety, perceived rejection, et cetera, than someone who doesn't have that diagnosis. But the goal being that they can then get to a place where actually they're able to deal with those internal responses in a way that is less distressing for them. So I don't know. That's my two cents. Mm-hmm. Very frustratingly, our answer is, I don't know. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. 
All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.